Our Father, the, the Christian life is um, the best life, but it is not an easy life. The Apostle Paul talked about an experience in Macedonia, and he described that in terms of what was going on in, in his own life and in his own heart. And he looked back on that, and he said, I had conflicts without and fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us. Uh, and everyone looks fine as we walk in here. We'll greet one another, and how are you doing? Doing fine. Um, nothing wrong with that, because we can't immediately go deep with every individual we encounter and meet. Can't do that. But it's the civil way of interacting in an appropriate way. But the fact of the matter is we may look fine, but a lot of us in here could relate to what Paul said. In actuality, I've got conflicts without, all around me. In fact, Paul said I'm afflicted on every side, and I've got fears within. That's not uncommon, because as men who are following you, we are in a battle, and we are in spiritual warfare, and we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the unseen powers, the demonic spirits that many in our day don't even acknowledge or believe in, or believe that there is a, a fallen angel who took a third with him, and they war against you, and they war against the saints. So we're in a battle, and as a result, we, we fight off uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and uh, at times, because the battle is fierce, and because the pressures are great, and because so much is riding on all this, we uh, get discouraged, we get fearful, we get anxious, we find ourselves in situations and we wonder how we will navigate through and how we will find a way out. But we're not in this by ourselves. We thank you that Christ is our Savior and that he keeps on saving. We thank you that he has given us his word, which is a sure word, a word that can be trusted, a word that gives us perspective, a word that gives us hope, a word that gives us promises, a word that reminds us that nothing is too hard for the Lord a word that reminds us that the, the Lord's arm is not so short that it cannot save. And it reminds us that the greatest difficulties and hardships and conundrums that we ever face in life 
where we can see no possible way through or no possible way of being delivered. In actuality, it's such a slight thing for the Lord to fix that and to handle it. Now, this is why we read our Bibles. We need to be reminded of these truths because we're in the battle. We're working. Some of us are retired, and we're doing things now that we didn't used to have time for, but we're involved, we're active, we're working with people. And it's easy, even when we have more leisure time, to get so busy that we forget your word. Yet your word sustained us. And your word, even though we're afflicted on every side, it reminds us of what is really true about our circumstances and our situation. So as we study your word tonight, encourage our hearts. Give each man precisely what he needs. You know every need, you know every heart, you know every circumstance, you know every situation and every detail far beyond anything that we know about our own lives. So we put ourselves in your hands. We know you'll walk us through and we know that you'll make a way. For you said that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. We believe that and we hold on to it. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Our key verse this semester uh, has been Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart. Some translations say, watch over your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. The heart is central to Christianity, and just by brief review, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about uh, the mind. It would be talking about the will. It would be talking about the emotions. It would be talking about attitude. It would be talking about conscience, talking about everything within us. The heart is central. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So the heart is central, and as we read Proverbs 4, we find that we are to concentrate on our hearts. There's a gentleman by the name of Bob Beal. First name spelled B-O-B-B, last name B-I-E-H-L. Now, most of you have not heard of Bob Beal. Uh, Bob, he's, he's, not a, he's really not a, a, he's not a Bible teacher. He's not a preacher. Uh, he's not in the public eye, but he is a Christian leader who has tremendous influence has probably met one-on-one with more Christian leaders and leaders of Christian organizations and churches over the last 40 years more than any other single man. Uh, But Bob Beal is sort of stealth. 
He's not in the limelight, but he consults and he gives wisdom and discernment and perspective to those who are leading Christian ministries. He had a profound effect on my life uh, when I was right around 36 years old. And Mary and I spent a day with him, and I had some friends who had met with him, and you got to meet with this guy. And he basically uh, in that day-long session explained to me uh, my life and my pattern and how I was wired. And as he was explaining things to me, after he asked many, many questions, and I filled out all kinds of things, and anyway, I'd heard so much about him, and, and I'd filled out all this information, and for the first couple hours, he just asked me more questions. And finally, I, I was getting a little, I'm thinking, where's the sizzle in the fajita here? <laughs> I mean, all this, this guy's just asking questions. And what he was doing, he was clarifying, he was clarifying. Yeah, he read all my stuff, and he did all this. And then he honed in. And he said some things to me that um, absolutely right on the money. Uh, it, it, and Mary's over there nodding her head. Uh, it, it was fascinating stuff. Uh, you, you can see his stuff online. A great a guy with great, great wisdom. He, uh, for a long time, his, his, uh, his company is called Master Planning Associates. He had a logo that was so unique. The logo was an elephant who was chained at the ankle to a stake in the ground. That was the logo. And the first time I saw that, I thought, what? I mean, obviously there's a story that's significant. And I remember when I got the explanation. Many years before he started this company, he had a friend in California who had a friend and the guy had bought a circus. And the circus was in town. And he was going to go spend a day at the circus behind the scenes. And he said to Bob, you want to go with me? And Bob said, sure. So they spent the day behind the scenes at the circus. And Bob said when they went to the far back lot where the animals were kept, he saw these huge elephants massive elephants, and every one of them was chained to a very small stake that had been driven into the ground, and they just sat there or stood there. But they were, and, and his thought was, they could, they could move an eyebrow with all of their power and pull that stake out and walk away from that stake. And when he met the trainer, he said, I got to ask you a question. How is it that these huge animals, you can control them 
by this small stake in the ground. And the guy said, well, yeah. He said, here's how you do it. When they're born, right after a week or so, we will begin to put a chain around the ankle and attach it to a stake and drive it into the ground. And they don't like it. And so what they begin to do is to pull against the chain. And they pull against the chain. And they pull against the chain. And they do it for weeks. They do it for months. They might even do it for a year or two. And then one day they stop. Because they know they will never be able to free themselves from that stake. And psychologically, we've got them, and they never try again. That's fascinating. As men who are following Christ, we are in spiritual battle, and we are in spiritual warfare, and Ephesians 6.10 tells us that. Um, when you get serious about following Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. Uh, Paul says we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan has different ways that he attempts to ambush and to detract and derail Christian men. Tonight, I want us to address the issue because our theme has sort of been guard your heart. And tonight, I want to specifically address the issue of guarding your heart against vain regrets. Guarding your heart against vain regrets. We all have regrets, all of us. We all look back over our past, and we see so many things that we regret. We wish we could have another pass at it, but we can't. Uh, we were young. We were stupid. We were foolish. We were hard-hearted. We were all kinds of things. Um, we thought we knew what was best. There's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, but the end thereof is destruction. He says it twice in Proverbs. Uh, so we all have regrets. What I want to give to you tonight, I'm basically going to, I'm going to give you two ways that the enemy seeks to chain us to our past through regrets. And this is a, this is a huge issue. Because the Bible says, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. But until you can get free of the regrets in your past, you really can't be free. So, so tonight, let me give you two strategies that the enemy will employ. Um, from your past in regard to your regrets. Here's number one. 
he uses great, great regret over some major sin. Great regret over some major sin. Or it can be great regret over a season of great sin and rebellion. Now, what I'm going to give to you tonight, I've mentioned the book Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones before. He has a chapter in here called Vain Regrets. The chapter prior to that on Vain Regrets, the, the title is That One Sin. And in this book, Spiritual Depression, he is, he is talking about the different ways that the enemy comes into our lives and attempts to depress us and get our eyes off of Christ and who we are in Christ and to discourage us and to rob us of our joy and to keep us from being effective in the kingdom. Uh, so what I'm going to give you tonight is what I learned in my early 30s when I read this book and it was life-changing for me. And I want to give Lloyd-Jones credit. So I'm going to kind of summarize two chapters. I'm going to give you some principles. They're his principles. This isn't my stuff. It's his. Um, he died in 1981. Uh, for my money... And that's not a lot of money. But in my opinion, he was the greatest biblical expositor of the 20th century. And you can hear him on the internet. They got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of. The guy was incredible. The guy had unbelievable ability, he had unbelievable ability to diagnose. He was a medical doctor before he was a pastor. And he was so gifted as a medical doctor that when he came, I, think, I believe he graduated from medical school, I'm going to say 18, it might have been 16 in England. And Lord Horder, who was the physician to the queen, had instructed him and uh, took him under his wing. And Horder said of Lloyd-Jones, his ability to diagnose was unparalleled. He'd never seen anyone else with that ability. And then years later, when he became a pastor, even then, physicians from England who were stuck with situations would contact him and ask for his insight. It's quite a man. So what's the first way that the enemy causes great regret? It's over some major sin. It can be that one sin. You look back and you look at that and you, 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 you would do anything if you could erase that. But you can't. It's there. It's happened. Um, it can be a season of sin. But the damage... The pain, the hurt, the, you get it. We're going to turn tonight to some passages concerning Paul, and I want us to go to Galatians 
Paul knew all about this. Great regret over some major sin. So Galatians 1.13. Paul had an incredible story of how he came to know the Lord. We'll start in verse 11 of Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Every once in a while you might hear somebody, there'll be a discussion among Christians, and someone will say, uh, you know, they'll quote a scripture, and someone might say in return, yeah, well, that, well, that's Paul saying that. Yeah, it is Paul. But Paul was an apostle. Well, it, it's like, well, well that's, that's Paul, that's not Jesus. Um, Paul was used to write such a huge chunk of the New Testament and to take the teachings of Christ and to um, clarify and solidify uh, for the body of Christ to this day. He was a brilliant thinker, brilliant gifts. But if someone says, well, that's just Paul, that's not just Paul, because whatever Paul wrote, he got from Jesus. We've got to understand that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. By the way, that's 2 Timothy 3.16, and it comes from Paul, which means it came from Jesus. And some might say, well, we'll see, that came from Paul. Okay? So what are you saying? Well, it's not authoritative. Really? No, you will have some Christians tell you this. It is authoritative. The book is authoritative. Well, but not that part. So in other words, you're the authority. You're the editor. So what parts do you take and what parts do you not take? Paul says, Galatians 1.11, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Now watch this. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He was tutored by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was taught, and when he wrote, as Peter did, and others who were moved by the Holy Spirit, it's the Word of Christ. It's the Word of God. Well, how could, how could God take his pure Word and take it through a sinful human instrument? Well, that's how Jesus came into the world. Jesus without, was uh, without sin, yet he was born of a woman who was a sinner. I mean, if you're going to deny that God can use a sinful man to give Scripture, you've got to deny that Christ could have been born through Mary and not been tainted by sin. I mean, it, it gets all screwy. J just read the text and go with it. You're not the authority. I'm not the authority. We get under the book. Now, here we go. 13. This is the critical point. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God, watch this, beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. 
That was Paul's major sin. That was his major season of sin. Flip over to Acts chapter 7. Now, this is a big deal. You talk about regret, trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he was all about. So, we go to Acts 7, and in Acts 7, we have the sermon that's being preached by Stephen to the Jewish council, and uh, he laid it on him. And verse 54 of 7 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Basically, he said, listen, you guys are rebellious as your fathers, and your fathers did not listen to the prophets, and you're just like them. And that didn't go over real well. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him, and being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. A horrific way to die. Bones are fractured, internal bleeding. It's just horrific. They began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul became the Apostle Paul. So Saul's right there. Go to 8.1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. Now watch this. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul went in and split families. He would take fathers, he'd put them in jail. He'd take mothers and put them in jail. The pain that was caused, the difficulty, the, the, the imprisonment, the torture, the uh, deprivation, uh, perhaps the malnutrition. I mean, he caused tremendous damage in the body of Christ. And he thought he was doing the right thing. He was absolutely opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that phrase back in Galatians 1, he said, I, I persecuted the church beyond measure. You can't even calculate the damage that I did. And I tried to destroy it. And then in Acts 9, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters for him to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way, Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. 
This wasn't an altar call. This was a command. Wasn't it? The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. And then the Lord calls a disciple named Ananias to come lay hands. He's healed. Saul's converted. And he is, (laughs) if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. So Saul becomes Paul. What was Saul's great sin? Persecuting the church beyond calculation. How many died? How many were killed? How many were tortured? Do you think the enemy ever brought that up to him? Sure, just like he does with our past, with our stuff. What do you do when you got that kind of sin? What do you do when you got that kind of past? Well, the solution is you run to Romans 8. A case could be made, a case could be made that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in all the Bible because it summarizes the work that Christ did on our behalf. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit and life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, watch this, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When Jesus went to the cross, see, we, we break the law. Jesus fulfilled the law in every point on our behalf. He fulfilled the law for us. He went to the cross as as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He who knew no sin became sin. We're coming up on Easter. This is Christianity. This is what Christianity is all about. So Jesus went to the cross. When he went to the cross, he was without sin. He took my sin. He took your sin. John 19. This will be undoubtedly read along with other passages in the Gospels. Look at verse 30. 1930, therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
When Jesus went to the cross, He took my sin and He took your sin, all of our sin upon Him. Uh, He took Paul's sin. He took Paul's sin of persecuting the church and trying to destroy the church and all of that. He took that sin of Paul on him. That, That major sin in your life that always comes to your mind, he took that sin upon him. That season of sin, he took that upon him. He took it all upon him. And he paid for it. The Greek word there that we translate, it is finished, is the Greek word tetelestai. It could be translated, it could be translated, it is finished. It was also commonly translated paid in full. If you committed a crime in the Roman Empire against Caesar, there would be a certificate of debt that was written out, and the charges were made on this certificate, this decree, the charges, and then you were taken to court, and if you were found guilty and sentenced, there was a certificate of debt saying that you owed Caesar X amount of years for these specific debts of violating his law. And then you would be put into a cell, the door would be shut, and that certificate of debt would be nailed to the wooden door when you had finished your sentence and when you were released on your way out, the clerk would take that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you and he would stamp on there to tell us die. Paid in full. Colossians 3. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians, uh, actually two. Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us most of our transgressions. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? Having forgiven us what? All. 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 He paid it all. I mean, that's, that's the greatest news in the world. He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Watch this. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. On your life and my life, when we trust in Him alone as our Savior, And I believe, Jesus, that you're God, and I believe you died in my place. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, after he went to the cross and died and said, it is finished, you shall be saved. It's the gospel. This is great stuff. 
So what's the solution? Because we all got a, a great sin. We all got a season of sin. What's the solution to, to breaking that chain that holds us? We're tied to our past. What's the solution? The solution is to run to Christ and what he did. You just keep running back to him. You turn your eyes upon Jesus. Get your eyes off of yourself. Yeah, we're all screwed up, but he's great. There's a second way that the enemy attempts to chain us to the past and causes great regret. And that second way is is that we would have great regret over our wasted years before salvation. Great regret over our wasted years before our salvation in Christ. Now, here is where I want to actually quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a doctor. He had an amazing ability to diagnose And in his chapter on vain regrets, he gives a diagnosis. Allow me to read you just a little bit of this. This rings so true. He says, we must now consider the case of other people who are crippled in the present. Did you catch that? Who are crippled in the present because of their past. They're chained to that stake of past just like the elephant. We must now consider the case of other people who are crippled in the present as the result of looking back into the past, not this time to some particular sin, but rather to the fact that they spent so much time outside the kingdom and are so late in coming into it. This, again, is an extremely common cause of spiritual depression. These people are depressed by the fact that they have wasted so much time, wasted so many long years, and that they have been so slow to become Christians at all. They are always bemoaning the fact that they have missed so many opportunities, opportunities of doing good and helping others and opportunities of service. They say, if only I had seen all this when I was young, I would have volunteered for service or I would have, uh, I would have had more years. This is all about missed opportunities. If only is their cry. If only, if only, as they look back over the wasted years. He goes on and says, now this is a very common condition, and it accounts for a state of spiritual depression in large numbers of people. How do we deal with this? What do we have to say about it? Let me start by saying that while it is perfectly right for such people to regret the fact that they have been slow to believe it is quite wrong to be miserable about it. Now, there's a surgeon for you. That's a fine cut right there. I'll read it again. Let me start by saying, while it's perfectly right for such people to regret the fact that they've been so slow to believe, it's quite wrong to be miserable about it. You cannot look back across your past life without seeing things to regret. That is as it should be. But it is just there that the subtlety of this condition comes in, and we cross that fine line of distinction that lies between a legitimate regret and a wrong condition of misery and of dejection. The Christian life is a very finely balanced life. That is one of the most striking features. It has been compared to a man walking on a knife edge with the possibility of falling easily on either side. 
All along, we have to draw subtle distinctions, and here is one of them. The distinction between a legitimate regret and a wrong condition of dejection and of misery. How then do we avoid being miserable in this respect? And he's basically going to give five principles to avoid present misery over past sin that Jesus has paid for. And this stuff can miss you up, can it not? What this does, if, if you start looking at your past and you start looking at what you... I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, the Apostle Paul said of Satan, we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of his strategy. I'll tell you a strategy he uses with me constantly. Uh, this happens to me on average, I would say, of 10 times a day. That I will suddenly have a memory of something I did years ago that I haven't thought of since it happened. And I immediately feel shame over it. It could have been in high school. It could have been... It's never ending. It's a great Niagara of sin from my past. And I have to tell you, for some reason, I have to deal with this regularly. It's, I deal with it all the time. Stuff, I, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm talking about obscure stuff. And suddenly it's there. And I immediately feel shame. Now, I can get locked up for 10, 15, 20 minutes. But you see, I can't do that. I got to guard my heart. I got to guard my mind. Because this is warfare. He's trying to paralyze me. These come from Lloyd-Jones. So five principles on how to avoid being miserable in the present over past sins. Number one, misery in the present over past failure is a sheer waste of energy. You say, that's pretty basic. Yeah, it is. But is that not true? Misery in the present over past failure is a sheer waste of energy. So when these things come to my mind, I have to fight them off. I have to remember what Christ has done for me, that there's no condemnation, and get about my business. Here's the second one. Dwelling on the past causes failure in the present. Dwelling on the past causes failure in the present. Why? Because you have no energy to be doing today what God has called you to do because all your energy has been sucked dry by pondering 
your past sin and thinking of the ramifications and all who were hurt, and you're sucked dry. You're emotionally drained. You're just, I mean, you're, you're done. You're fatigued. And if you allow the enemy to do this to you, instead of you're running to the Lord and claiming Scripture and quoting Scripture and then getting about your business, which he has clearly called you to do, you're not going to get anything done, and you're going to fail in the present. By the way, each week we've had an epitaph, and I've got one for you tonight from the Apostle Paul. Now, there are different ones we could find in Scripture that would all fit, but in this context, there is an epitaph that absolutely fits, and it would be Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Now watch this. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. There you go. That's it. And I'm telling you, Paul had to do this a hundred times a day. Those faces would pop up those crying children as he ripped the mother out of the home. I mean, mean, it was a torrent. He could have been so locked up in remorse and guilt and, and wallowing in shame, but you see, you can't do that because he's got a work to do, and I've got a work to do, and you've got a work to do, and you can't give your energy to it. But see, when I turn to what Christ has done, I don't lose energy, I'm energized. Is that not true? Because whom the Son has set free is free indeed. We have to guard our hearts and guard our minds when this stuff happens and refuse to be paralyzed by our past. Just do exactly what Paul says. This is a great scripture to memorize. Forgetting what lies behind. (laughs) I heard Ben Hayden, who for a long time was the pastor at First Presbyterian Chattanooga. I I heard him for about 20 minutes one time on the radio. This was in the last two years, and I hadn't heard him in 20 years. Uh, He was doing a message. The guy was a great communicator. Where Jesus said, if you put your hand on the plow, you don't look back. He said, I quote that verse to me, to myself constantly. Constantly. The context was, I find myself looking over my past and regretting. And he'll say, Ben, don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. I press on. I got a work to do. That's how you guard your heart. Third principle. Make up for your past in your present. Make up for your past in your present. Here's where we go to 1 Corinthians 15. 
And there'll be a lot of sermons preached on 1 Corinthians 15 this Sunday. First Corinthians 15, verse 3. You guys still with me? You doing all right? All right. For I, for I delivered to you as of first importance. By the way, who's writing this? Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's the word of Christ. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing in the world. Right here. The most important thing in the world, hands down. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That means they died. Then He appeared to James, then all the apostles. Now watch this. Here we go. Verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Now watch this. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Why would he say it? Because I persecuted the church of God. There it is. There's that great sin that was, Satan would always throw up in his face. You see? There it is. And, and the thing is, it was true and he was guilty. Absolutely flat out guilty. And that's the thing about our regrets. We're guilty. This is really, really, he says, last of all, he was the last of the apostles to be called. To be an apostle, you had to be hand chosen directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happened in Acts 9 as he was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church. So you stop and think about that. He was the last one called by Christ. So that's Acts 9. In Acts 1 through 8, the Spirit of God is moving. All kinds of things are happening. The Lord is at work. And where's Paul? He's trying to kill the church. He's trying to kill the work of Jesus Christ. Prior to that, you got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Where's Paul? He saw, and he's around, and he's a scholar of the Hebrews. He was educated under Gamaliel. This guy's brilliant, and he's, he's probably holding the baits, and he's disproving it and writing, you know, articles and doing all this stuff, and he's got a blog thing he's doing, saying, this is, you can't believe this. This is wrong. This is not true. That, 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 that. I mean, God's at work, and he's on the other team, and he's the captain of the team, And then the resurrected Christ, last of all, appeared to me, the one who was untimely born. He was the, he was the last to come. You talk about wasted years. You think he ever pondered those wasted years? Oh, I'm, I guarantee he did. But watch this. Watch verse 10. He, he, uh, uh, I'm not fit to be an apostle in nine because I persecuted the church of God. But, 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Lloyd-Jones in here says, and what was he? He was forgiven. He was redeemed. He was justified. He was called. He was chosen. That's who. He doesn't say there in 10, but by the grace of God, I was what I was. Or he doesn't say by the grace of God, I am what I was. You are not you are not what you were. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I've got a new heart. I've been born again. I've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. And he's got a plan and a purpose for my life. That was true of him, and that's true of you. And it's true of me. Ephesians 2.8. We know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's, I mean, Paul was saved by grace. We're all saved. We're saved by grace. If you're saved, it's by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Now keep going. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not good works to be saved. You were saved in verse 8 by grace. But after we're saved, because the living Christ is in us, he now has work for us to do. He has a purpose for your life. He has put you together. He has wired you in a certain way. You say, I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be a preacher. There are different gifts in the body of Christ. He distributes the gifts as he wills, but you've got gifts. He's wired you. He's put you together. You've got a sphere of influence. You've got people who are looking to you. That's your slot. That's your area. That's your sphere where you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Billy Graham had a huge one. Most of us have small ones, but they're all important. As Francis Schaeffer said, there are no little people and there are no little places. We're all his servants. So you come to Christ and he redeems you and he saves you, and now he's maturing you and we're going in Christ because he's got a work for you to do. He, he said, well, what is it? He, what what, what are the work? I don't know. I don't know. What do you want? You? I don't know. But you know what? He'll get them done through you. He, Philippians 1, 6, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. He's going to use you. Well, I, I, I can't speak. I can't. Fine. Doesn't matter. God knows that about you. He wired you. He put you together. He knows you better than you know yourself. He'll still use you. Just be available. So you got to do is just say, Lord, I'm... you can love people. You can serve. Can't you? Oh, well, that's not important. Oh, 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 oh yeah. yeah, it is. Because Jesus said, you give a cup of water to someone who's thirsty, 
You're doing that for me. You're giving that to me. He sees it. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So, that, do you see? This is why I don't want to get all my energy drained by the past and getting that chain. Chump that stuff. Forget it. It's under the blood. Don't spend a moment of your energy back there. Fight it off and get to your business, what God has given you to do today. Well, I've just got to do this paperwork. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as under Christ, not as under men, but as under the Lord Jesus, for he's the one whom you serve. Rough paraphrase. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So what's before you today? So take your wife to the doctor, take her to the doctor, and you're serving the Lord and you're serving her. That's not insignificant. And you love her, and you help her out of the car, and she's discouraged, and you put your arm around her, and you love her, and she's sorry she's sick because she can't help you. That's spiritual leadership. That's Jesus stuff, isn't it? If you're going to be great in the kingdom, Jesus said, you must become the servant. Number four, what matters is not when you came, but that you came. What matters is not when you came, but that you came. Oh, I heard these, oh, I heard this guy talk about he 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 had a Christian home and his parents led him to Christ when he was seven years old. It's such a and I wish oh I wish I had I had that. I, I didn't have a Christian home. I didn't even I didn't even become a Christian until I was fifty seven. Uh, you came. You came. Once again, it's a waste of sheer energy to even ponder this stuff. Do you know why? Psalm 31, I think it's 14, says, my times are in your hand. All of the times of my life, all of the times in your life are in his hand. Your birth, your conception, your birth, your second birth. It's in his hands. You could, I'm going to tell you something. You couldn't have come any sooner. Now, how do you like that one? Because you just can't will to come to Christ. Now, we're taught that. That's what we think in evangelicalism. Nothing could be further from the truth. You just can't decide on your own, oh, I, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to come to Christ. You can't do it because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. No man can come unless the Father draws him. And if the Father's drawing you, you're coming. Just like Paul. It's not a maybe, it's irresistible grace. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come. There you go. That's irresistible. And you know what? It better be irresistible or we wouldn't come because we don't want to come. 
We want to do it our way. We got our plans. We got our agenda. We don't want God. Psalm 14, God has looked over all the sons of the earth. There is no one who seeks him. There is no one who does good. God's looked over all the sons of the earth. No one seeks him. Yeah, but Steve, just a year ago, I heard the gospel for the first time, and I was in, and some guys, I got to know them at work, and then I went to a study, and, and I began to seek him. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I started to seek him. Yeah. Yeah, you did. You know why? You love him because he first loved you. And he started pulling you in. And it wasn't, will you bite or not bite? You're coming. You're just coming. It's like when they tried to trip Jesus up about the taxation thing. You know? Render unto Caesar things of Caesar and things to God, the things of God. He said, hey, Peter, by the way, go catch a fish and in the fish will be a coin to pay the taxes. That's called power. That's called sovereignty. That's called providence. He's got you. Your times are in his hands. Your screw-ups, your foolishness, mine, all of it, it's in his hands, and it's covered by the blood of Christ. I love this stuff. I mean, I love it. This is the greatest stuff in the world. Number five. Trust him with all your wasted years to bring good. Trust him with all your wasted years to bring good. And the verse here would be Joel 2.25, which says, And the years which the locusts have eaten I will restore. Um, You've probably seen an episode or two, at least, of Little House on the Prairie. But Mary got all the books and read through them with her kids. And Laura Ingalls Wilder talked about her family, and they were closer to the city, and his dad, her dad wanted to try his hand at farming, and so they moved out in the country. And... Uh, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but he had either four or five years of working his tail off, sweating from early in the morning to late at night, and just as the crop was coming in and ready to be harvested, a sea of locusts came in and stripped that crop bare. Not one year, not two years. Four years, maybe five. That was it. They were done. Those years were wasted. All that time, all that energy, all that work, there was not a thing to show for it. Utterly wasted because of the locust. But God says, the years which the locusts have eaten, 
I'll restore it. Your wasted years, and we've all got them, those wasted years, I'll restore them. Well, 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 well he, I haven't seen him do that yet. It's because he hasn't done it yet. That doesn't mean he's not going to do it. You just haven't seen it. You, you just be faithful. And you keep going about what he's called you to do now. You keep following the Lord. You keep walking with him. You keep reading your Bible. Read your Bible. Hold on to the promises. Be faithful. He was faithful in little, will be faithful in much. Your times are in his hands. Yeah, this is really a rough time financially. Your times are in his hands. He's got you. He knows what he's doing. George Mueller used to say, God is my banker. And he is. He's your banker. He's your everything. See, if I've had such devastating loss in my life, in my family, I did. It's on me. It was me. Okay? And you've confessed that, and you've admitted it to the Lord, and you repented? Yeah. You're forgiven. And now... You just start following the Lord. And you keep following. And when you sin, you confess your sin. Yeah, but all those wasted years, I mean, how could they ever? Well, is the arm of the Lord too short that it cannot save? Here's another one. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, this is, are you 100 years old and your wife's 90? and you couldn't get a Cialis prescription? <laughs> and her womb was dead anyway? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. You say, There's no, I, don't, I don't see any possible way. That's exactly right, you don't. Because there is no possible way that we can see. But see, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he's also the one that provides for me. But... but I had a guy tell me in 2008, he said, I, I know him pretty well, and he said, Steve, I had $2 million in my retirement account, and it's gone. He knows the Lord. He said, it's, it's gone. I said, you're screwed. <laughs> and, and, and he laughed because, you see, he... he he knew he wasn't. It just seemed like he was. Yeah, I lost all my retirement. I got completely wiped out. I don't have enough years to get it back. Yeah, you don't. But you see, the years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. 
And Lloyd-Jones, in that chapter, says, here's the great thing about God. Have you lost 10 years' crop? God can give you 10 years in one year. In one year. I've seen him do it. And he gets the glory. And when he does it, you make sure your kids know about it. And as your grandkids get older, you tell them of the faithfulness of God. That he's watching over his word to perform it. He can give you 10 years and one year. He can make a way where there is no way. It's what he does. Isaiah 46, 3. It, it, don't you love it when they I get these things in the mail, you know, retirement guide, and here's your retirement checkup, and we're having a, a, a seminar Tuesday at the holiday in at 3 o'clock, and then another one on Friday at noon, and we're going to check up. And then you check it out, and you go, oh, my gosh. i got to catch up. And you run the calculator in order to catch up and have enough money for retirement. I mean, you got to save $17,000 a week. <laughs> otherwise, you're, otherwise, you're not going to make it. You're, you're just not going to make it. You know Christ? You're going to make it. Isaiah 46.3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth, and carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. When you can't work, when you can't move, when you can't talk, when you can't, I'm the same. You're not. I'm the same. I have borne you. I have carried you. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have borne you. I have carried you. I will carry you, and I will bear you. That's the Word of God. It's guaranteed. It comes with no trillion-dollar deficit. It's tax-free, and it'll be there when you need it. It's called manna. we got guys in here that can tell you stories of God's amazing provision. So you work, and you work hard. Well, I made some investment mistakes. Everybody has. You work, and you work hard, and you know what? He's got you covered. I don't see any. Knock that off. And hold on to the promises. Now to him who is able to do, Ephesians 3.20, exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. That's Jesus. That's not an excuse for passivity but it's an assurance that as we do our work and do our part, he sees it.
he's our insurance. And it's impossible that he won't come through. So, Father, we thank you. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. We're free from our past because of what Jesus has done. I pray that these truths will, will be, the word I want to use is tattooed, right on our foreheads, right on our hearts. We've got guys here in, under incredible pressures. First of all, Lord, set us free from draining the energy to the past and enable us to be re-energized by looking at what Jesus has done and what he will continue to do. Keep us in your word. May we feed on the promises because they give us hope. And we wait on you and your provision and your perfect timing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand and sing the doxology. I think that's a good thing to do. All right? Where's Don McMinn? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.